a legendary band, an iconic lead singer, and their mysterious connection to a woman whose love helped create the music of a generation. Timing is everything in a powerful novel about fate, regret, and moving on by Kelly McNeil, the author of A Day Like This. In the 1990s, Carter Wills was the lead singer of the English alt-rock band May Luna, securing his place among music legends. His tortured heart lyrics struck a chord, and so did his secret connection to a woman whose love changed all their lives. Who is she? Evie Waters' two grown children discover an iconic photo in an old magazine of a mystery girl with Carter, their mother. It all started in a wistful time and place for Evie, her 25th summer, a young columnist forging her career, backstage euphoria, a long-shot interview, and an almost cosmic connection with an enigmatic musician on the rise. What happened between them is a hidden story no one, not even Evie's family knows, until now. Worlds apart, Carter and Evie finally reveal the story joyful, regretful, and unforgettable. It was a time when the stars aligned for a love so profound, the whole world felt it. It was as if it would last forever. May Luna by Kelly McNeil, out now. This is Dana Spiota. This is John Ray. This is Franz Nikolai. Hi, this is Susie Quattro. This is Janet Fitch. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Sarah Priscus. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. everybody, this is Aaron Camaro from the Decibel Geek Podcast, and you're listening to Rock is Lit! Hey there, Lit listeners. Welcome to another episode of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, and also a finalist in the 2023 PopCon Indie Podcast Contest in the category of Art and Culture. Rockus Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey everybody, I'm Trevor Noah, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. Rockus Lit is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout out to this semester's Rock is Lit interns, production intern Cater Jones, and social media intern Jenna Rudolph. Another special shout-out to my Pantheon Network pal, Aaron Camaro from the Decibel Geek Podcast, for voicing the synopsis of May Luna by Kelly McNeil at the beginning, and also for providing the Rock is Lit soundbite in every episode of the podcast. Find out more about me and Rock is Lit on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com. Drop me a line at christyalexanderhallberg at gmail.com 
to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the rock is lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. I'm so excited to welcome Kelly McNeil to the podcast to talk about her new novel, May Luna, which was just released in paperback, Kindle, audio CD, and audiobook today, February the 1st. Before we begin our discussion of May Luna, have a listen to the prologue and an excerpt from Chapter 1 from the audiobook, narrated by Amanda Lee Cobb and Kevin Kemp. Back in a bit with author Kelly McNeil. It's a bittersweet symphony that's life. Trying to make ends meet, you slip to whatever you die. Prologue. Evie. He often said that time travel was more accessible to us than we realize and that music is one of the ways we do it. He's right, I think. After all, few things have the ability to transport us so completely and powerfully as the sound of the perfect, meaningful song. The music of our lifetime is woven into the fabric of our existence, our own personal soundtrack behind our stories. Maybe it takes us to a memory, an echo of something that once was, or maybe to a place where we can live out an imagined dream. The great philosophers and astronomers believed that music could be felt from the stars and planets, traveling through space and time, and that there was magic in the design of the cosmos, connecting us in ways we can only begin to imagine. I wonder, after you hear our story, if you'll believe it too. 1. Carter In the hills of the Yorkshire Dales, My mother and brother are strumming guitars, side by side on a colourful picnic blanket beneath a tree. His is a slightly smaller version, perfect for the hands of a growing boy, purchased at a second-hand store with money left over from groceries, saved in a biscuit tin. The cool autumn air hints at the coming change of season, and the sun hits my mother's shoulders in a way that forms a kind of golden glow around her. It's a hazy image as early memories are, more of a moving snapshot than an actual memory. A feeling, comforting, perhaps borrowing from a later memory. I hear my mother's gentle voice humming along as she strums the strings with delicate fingers. My brother, three years older, was a natural musician. People would say, born with a guitar in his hands and perfect pitch, even when he cried, they'd joke. I did my best to keep up, and sometimes I nearly did. A little, anyway. My mother played all sorts of music, folk tunes mostly, or church songs sometimes, but my favourites growing up were when she'd strum her own version of popular songs that we might hear on the radio. We'd copy her, and it would make us feel just a tiny bit cooler. Forever Young by Alphaville was a favourite, I think. 
I loved the sound of her voice above the finger-picked notes that sounded more like a music box than a rock ballad. She was a secondary school teacher, my mother. She taught mathematics to 12- and 13-year-olds who learned to find beauty and art in all those numbers in a small school outside the town of Ravensdale in northern England. The scenes of my childhood are a combination of fern-covered hills, smoky mills beside tidy hamlets, and moorland that rolled into the distance to reach wide beaches beneath chalky coasts. Our town sat between the country hills and the sea, nearly equidistant so we chose our weekend outings based on mood and weather. We asked my mother once why she wasn't a musician instead of a schoolteacher, and she didn't answer. But sometimes she would get a faraway look in her eyes that made me wonder if she was seeing herself in another life, perhaps on a small stage in a village pub somewhere, where fireside pints in the evening gave way to stage lights bouncing off long, straight brown hair parted down the centre. She'd met my father when she was just 17, became pregnant shortly after, and was married by 19. My father took a job at the local railroad company and worked up the ranks of management until the line closed down. Then he just took work wherever he could get it. Money was tight, tensions and tempers were tighter. But on days like the one I'm visiting in my memories now, beneath the tree with just my mother and brother, we could relax. The music was our escape, something the three of us shared together like a private little club. For the last hour, I've been telling this story and others like it to a journalist named Michael, seated in front of me on a long white leather bench on a private plane high in the sky above the clouds, the evening dipping below the horizon. A cameraman sits alongside him, occasionally filming as I speak. It's a sparse setup, the film crew, not the plane, but that's what I like about it. Nothing fancy, just how we'd originally intended it to be years ago. So would you say that you got your talent from your mother then? Michael asks. Probably, but my brother was the one with all the talent. I just made do. I'd say you made do pretty well. I could come up with the music in my head, but I wasn't always able to do what I wanted with it. But he could play any instrument you put in his hands, and I knew I would never be that good. I sort of figured out a way to make it work. I would tune the guitar differently so that the few chords I knew could turn into a lot more depending on the tuning. It created a certain kind of sound that worked. I played the piano without learning to read music. Who came up with the name Spurnhead as that first band name? He laughs a bit, the name sounding more than a little ridiculous at this point. Nearby, Tommy chuckles out loud and groans. The sound of Tommy's laugh is one that could bring light to any weary soul. Not that mine is weary, lately, but his optimistic nature certainly saved me in the past a few times. That was Jacob, I say, sharing an amused glance with Tommy that softens at the end. It's the first time I've said my brother's name out loud in a long time, and the word feels slow and smooth on my lips. Names are spells. Man, that was such a terrible band name, I add, mostly to myself. It was you! Tommy points at me and laughs again. Jacob said you came up with it one night. I did not. I think maybe you did, sorry to say. It was him, I say clearly, putting the subject to rest. It was Jacob. If you say so, Tommy mumbles. Well, anyway, it didn't stick, thankfully. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it as May Luna, Michael says with a smile. Definitely not. But it was nice still the name carrying me back to a different time with sea salt and wild skies. 
There is this remote bit on the Yorkshire coast, a tidal island where our mum took us a few times called Spurnhead. It feels a bit like the end of the earth once you get there. There was a legend that people there had seen what appeared to be a star twinkling through the dark side of the crescent moon on some nights. The first time I heard the story as a young boy, it fascinated me. It seemed magical. Moonstar, he says, naming a song from our first EP, the hit that got us our record deal a lifetime ago. I nod. My mum used to dream of having a little cottage nearby with a view of the sea. Did she ever get it? She did, as a matter of fact. It was one of the first things I bought her. I wanted to buy her the moon and the stars and a palace, but she just wanted that little cottage with a garden where she could grow old peacefully with an eye toward the sea and plenty of constellations. I think of her there, imagining an old guitar hanging on a wall, mostly collecting dust these days. A flash of lightning hits the cabin, illuminating the rest of the seats that were dimmed in the front of the plane. In its momentary brightness, which seems to last seconds rather than milliseconds, I see Tommy's jaw clench tight and his knuckles grip the seat in such a minuscule way that you'd have to know him well in order to see it. Shortly after we'd taken off from Mexico City, we'd hit some turbulence and the pilot announced that there was weather up ahead but nothing to worry about. I caught Tommy's eye and nodded in reassurance. He laughed it off and gave me a mock salute to let me know he was all right. He gets anxious. More so these days with a wife and small children at home. He's having a harder time leaving them, and he's never been a big fan of airplanes, especially the kind like we're on now. Small, private ones. Neither am I, if I'm being honest. When I'm up in a plane, I can almost feel gravity's fury at having been defeated, as if lying in wait, ready to bring it all back down to the earth where we belong. We named her Lucy in the Sky our private plane, a plush living room in the clouds. We all celebrated the day we got her. We're big time now, mates, I remember Tommy saying. But in truth, we missed our old tour bus sometimes. Miss Penny Lane, we called her a lifetime ago. Not terribly creative in hindsight, I say to Michael after mentioning the old bus and the coordinating names. He has a studious look about him a little rumpled and affable as he sits there with the passive intrigue that I recognize as a common trait in rock journalists. When I finally agreed to the series of interviews that have been taking place, I wasn't sure who was more surprised, him or me. We seem too young for a retrospective. Are we really that old? Not really, I was told, but people want to know our story, see behind the curtain, and it felt cathartic like a new beginning with old shadows left behind. We decided together that it was time. It would be a benchmark before we begin the path that headed toward becoming aging rock stars. A frightening prospect. Michael laughs a little. <laughs> As band names and airplanes go, it could be worse. You could have painted a half-naked woman on the side of the plane. I smile. Something I've been doing more of in recent days. Levity returning to my body. It can always be worse. The sky outside dims to a deeper navy, made darker by the imposing clouds sliding across its inky surface. So, that's more of the backstory, I say shrugging. We're discussing the start of the band and the album that launched it all. Michael already knows a lot of the public details, but this interview will be a new perspective, one that will cover a bit more of the history and rise of our little group of friends 
that had gone from playing in tiny rooms at university to all of this. Even now, it's still hard to believe sometimes that we're on our way to a sold-out stadium show in Rio, then on to Costa Rica, where we'll finish out the last two shows of what's been a long world tour. We're ready for a break. I lean back into the cushions of the bench and stretch my legs out in the expanse between us. So that album was all a story about a girl, Michael says, shaking his head and smiling. A computer sits beside him and I glance at the red lights of the recording display ticking the milliseconds of my life. Aren't they always? I suppose so. But this was the story about a girl who inspired one of the biggest albums of all time, launched a band into superstardom. That's a hell of a story, Mr. Wills. You really do have a hard time calling me Carter, don't you? To be fair, you of all people don't really have the best reputation of playing well in the sandbox with the media and journalists. Our last encounter was a little... He pauses. Dicey, I think would be a good word. Let's just say I feel it's wise to proceed with caution. He gives me a wry look. Fair enough. When we last met, you refused to speak much about that album. Refused to answer most of the questions in general, if I recall. I had a hell of a time piecing it together and almost lost my ass on that one. He's referring to an article that came out in Rolling Stone earlier this year, meant to promote the tour. Promotions have never really been my thing. Sorry about that. That's fine. But now that we've brought it up, it leads me to ask how you feel about the fact that people say you're enigmatic when they're being kind, but others use words like dark and more than a little broken. Are you really? Or is it just another story? Part of the mystique? You don't mince words, do you? Would you rather I did? No. I like that about you. It's part of why you're here. Besides the fact that you came highly recommended by someone I trust. Really? He looks surprised and intrigued. I didn't realize we had anyone in common. Who was it? I ignore this and return to his earlier question from a few moments ago about my troubled persona. So many rumors. I'm just a guy. Just like you. Just like that guy. I point to a flight attendant fixing a tray of items at the rear of the cabin. Something tells me you're nothing like that guy, he says. You never know. People are rarely what they seem, right? This is Kelly McNeil, and this is Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Thanks for joining me, Kelly. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've been particularly excited about this conversation. Well, I have too. I really loved your book. So I'm looking forward to having an in-depth conversation about it. But first of all, congratulations are in order. The book comes out today, February the 1st, and it's already making some noise with advanced readers and reviewers. Library Journal called it, quote, an achingly romantic tearjerker that hits the same notes as Taylor Jenkins reads Daisy Jones and the Six. So tell me, are you excited about the association with Daisy Jones and the Six? Or are you just freaking sick to death of hearing that? <laughs> you know, I, no, first of all, it's an honor because, I mean, she's just fabulous and that was a fabulous book. So it would be silly for me to not be flattered by that comparison. The book, you know, we knew that inevitably it would generate comparisons because they're both music books. Right. They both have a a journalistic spin to them and they both are historical fiction. So they're just two different time periods. But I think that Taylor would probably agree that (laughs) that the books are very, very different once you get into them. They're very different stories and they're written very differently. But yeah, still happy to be playing in the sandbox with her. That's right. I've read that the inspiration for May Luna came to you about a decade ago when you heard a song on the car radio. And before that song was over, you had the characters and basic plot in your head. It is entirely true. I've always been very connected to music, which is why I wanted to write a book about music. But it has had that effect on me in my writing all along. So I can't write without music. They go hand in hand for me. So it's not surprising to me that I had that reaction. Some of my best inspiration will come just, you know, in the perfect hook of the song. But that day, I still remember it very clearly in the, in the song coming on. And it was maybe a three and a half, four minute song. And all of the characters, the entire storyline just unfolded. And I went home and started writing. And that was it. My goodness. What was the song? I'm keeping that one close. No, yeah, I, I wanted know. to know the song. Oh. If there was anybody I would tell you, it would be it would be you. I can tell you, Christy. Yeah, I have decided to keep it close. And the reason for that is music is so personal to people and it is so subjective that the moment I said publicly what that song was, it would give an impression. And I really wanted people to connect to whatever music makes them feel the emotions that I'm trying to convey in this book. Okay. This question has been asked by so many readers. I have to know what the song is. The truth of the matter is the song is whatever the song is to you. 
you know, the reader, the entire prologue is about that, about the, the feeling of the perfect, meaningful song and the way that can take you to places in your life or in your imagination. So I've actually been encouraging readers to let me know what that song is for them. And it's just wild because it's very often so different than what it was for me. So, But that's the reason why I'm keeping it quiet. Well, then I'm not even going to try and guess. I don't, wanna, <laughs> don't even yeah. want to do that. I know what mine would be, but I won't even try and guess. But you mentioned the prologue and we played that earlier. In the prologue, there's a mention of our having our own personal soundtrack behind our stories. So do you have your own soundtrack? I do. I have a Spotify playlist that I call Sounds Like Me. <laughs> uh huh. It is just this sort of chaotic list. There's no rhyme or reason to it, but there might be songs that remind me of being in the car with my mom when I was four years old, or songs that I listened to when I was falling in love, or getting my heart broken, or just having fun and dancing with my daughters. It just runs the gamut of my entire life. It is very much the soundtrack of my life. That must be a really long playlist. It is. I'm always adding to it, though. And I always will be, you know. Well, you have a May Luna playlist, too, on Spotify. Are there a few songs from that playlist just off the top of your head that you think crystallize the story? There are several. Well, the beginning of the book starts out with the main character, one of the two main characters, referring to Forever Young by Alphaville, which was a big song for his mother. And I wrote that chapter while actually listening to not the original by Alphaville, but the version that I have, Lily Kershaw's, which I put on the playlist. So that is very accurate to the storytelling and story writing experience that I heard that song. And it just, I just could picture this mother in this young boy who would grow up to be a musician Mm. playing this song beneath a tree. The playlist very much follows the storyline of the book. So I have The Ghost in You in there by the Psychedelic Furs. And I have Carter and Evie having a conversation. And that song has a lot of different interpretations. But in the way I interpreted it was the newspapers are talking about everything. And, you know, this person is falling in love and they know that it's going to be under a microscope of media. And so I kind of used the songs to play into the story a little bit. And then also to just sort of define the tastes and sensibilities of the band members themselves. The playlist really takes you on a journey of um, the story. It's very closely aligned. Just a few more that I wrote down that resonated with me. The Scientist Mm -hmm. by Coldplay, Fake Mm -hmm. Plastic Trees by Radiohead, Into Dust by Mazzy Starr. And I could Mm -hmm. go on and on, but those Mm -hmm. really spoke to me and they certainly speak to the story as well. So it is very much a, a novel where music is the heart and soul of it. Yes. So a couple of songs I put on this playlist because they were representative of the time and the style of music that Mm -hmm. I imagined May Luna, the band, to have. But yeah, and then some of them are just quite literally like, you know, there's a breakup in it and I have Go Your Own Way on the playlist. I have 
Run by Snow Patrol, very powerful song. It's very closely aligned with the story. I actually have Fields of Gold on the playlist. The main character speaks about light and the look of gold on fields and and mm-hmm. just sort of such a romantic song. So yeah, they, they're, every single one is there for a particular reason. Ordinary right. World, Duran Duran's song, great for a, a woman trying to just sort of settle into a very normal suburban life after having lived an extraordinary experience. I do have to tell you, I very much appreciate the Led Zeppelin shout outs. There are two or three of them in there. And there's even the Jimmy Page shout out. So for a leadhead like me, that was very exciting. Oh, good. I'm so glad. (laughs) (laughs) So Kelly, you worked as a concert tour promoter for about a decade, I think. And it really shows in the novel. The details about music venues are great. I love the way you describe backstage at Jones Beach Amphitheater in Wonton, New York. And then there's the part where Abby describes some wild stuff she's seen go on backstage. I'm sure you've got some stories of your own. So come on, Dish, we want to hear. You know, I was able to dig into that. And so some of the stories in the book are true. I will probably never publicly say which ones are true and which ones were fabricated. But I will say that probably 80% of them were things that I actually took, (laughs) took from real life. A lot ended up on the cutting room floor of this book because it was rewritten at one point. And when I rewrote it, I had no choice. But And it's already a a pretty lengthy book. Mm -hmm. So a lot had to get cut, which was just excruciating. And you as a writer can understand that. Yes, ma'am. A lot that got left on the cutting room floor were more backstage scenes because they just simply didn't further the story. But there are so many scenes that I had written that I would love to have included. But, you know, I had to leave some of them out. Okay, well, I understand your need for discretion here. So I won't ask you for specifics about some of those scenes. But can you at least tell us some of the folks you worked with during that time? Sure. So it was I was working in the late 90s and 2000s, early 2000s. And it was about a decade. And my role was primarily with the large scale touring acts. So big arena tours that were out at the time and stadium tours, the amphitheater tours, that sort of thing. So that was, I mean, I did other things as well, but that's primarily what I worked on. That would have been Dave Matthews tours. Aerosmith was out on tour then. Lollapalooza was touring. Lilith Fair. We had, you know, like there was the Eagles and a lot of big country happening then. Mm -hmm. Like the Tim McGraw tours, the Kenny Chesney tours, NSYNC, the boy bands came out around that time. So we had those going. Coldplay was one of them. It was big. Maroon 5. That was the music of the time. Mm -hmm. I will say that the Aerosmith story is accurate. (laughs) It's a a little... (laughs) That that is true. (laughs) Uh, Kelly, that is just shocking. No one's going to believe Aerosmith would ever behave that way. Yeah. yeah. So Steven, yeah, Steven Tyler, I, I don't think would be, I think he would get a chuckle out of the idea <laughs> that anybody would possibly deny the fact that he loved to, you know, romance people by uh-huh. stage and be very, he was very warm. I'll just put it that way. He's very warm. Okay. Very kind okay. person. Come here, baby. You know, you drive me up a wall, the way you make good for the nasty tricks you pull. Seems like we're making up more than we're making love. It always seems you got something on your mind other than me. Girl, you got to change your crazy ways. You hear me? 
The novel describes the band Mayluna Sound as a mix of Radiohead and U2. Now that offers a distinctive contradiction to the American 1990s grunge mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. Talk more about that fictional band. Sure. So one of the key ideas was that I wanted to make sure that Mayluna was a British band because in the late 90s we were coming out of grunge, right? And then we were getting into this like really testosterone heavy rock that was going out. We had Woodstock 99 happening, a a lot of testosterone and aggression in music that was just part of the style. But at the same time, in Britain, we had bands like Travis coming up. We had Snow Patrol, Radiohead, Oasis, which was just a completely different sound. So I decided to use that idea to form May Luna. And, you know, they are definitely an amalgamation of a number of bands that I just mentioned with you 2 also. Mm-hmm. just kind of to give the impression of the magnitude of the success. But yeah, so I very carefully placed them in that time period from Britain as a band that maybe was going to take a little bit of time. You weren't like, just like Evie says in the book, she's not sure because not, you know, America doesn't always embrace these bands. I imagined them very much like the kind of band that you would have been hearing on college radio stations. You know, where it was like, are they going to pick up? Are they not? Are they going to be a little bit too soft to catch on? I very much imagined them in one of the scenes that I cut was on that early, one of their early tours, them being put on a festival, much like Lollapalooza, uh, you know, alongside much more aggressive bands and them being like, okay, well, we're either going to put people to sleep or we're hopefully going to just sort of mesmerize them and give them a completely different feeling. And so that's the way I imagined May Luna picking up. And the timing was just perfect because they become, their big album becomes hugely successful around like 99 and continues on. Talk about mesmerizing. There's a scene in the book. What's the first concert that Evie sees when she goes mm-hmm. to interview the band? Right. It's not easy to write about music, especially live mm-hmm. music. Here's just a little taste of what that scene looks like. This is the band on the stage. Everything was cast in ghostly black and white, creating deep shadows, while a large screen behind displayed mesmerizing geometric shapes spinning slowly, the whole effect creating a kind of trance-like setting. So yes, you very much create this mood around this band, and, and then there's Carter Wills, the lead singer, who's got this brooding presence, and he comes across as so enigmatic on stage. It's hard as hell to really capture the energy of a live show. And you did it brilliantly. It's terrific. Mm, Thank you. There are two live scenes in it. There's the one you just mentioned. And then there's also another date that's um, where they're on a stadium show. I think there's about 80,000 people at that one. So I also had to come up with the difference between those two types of experiences. Right. Um, but yeah, I loved doing that. And I, I wanted, because the book does have some metaphysical themes that run through it, these cosmic themes, I needed that to be part of the band's feel. Yes. And I really needed to capture Carter in that first scene where, you, the, where, where the reader is first seeing what it's like to, to see this, this person perform on stage. And I imagined this kind of hush coming over the crowd when this person 
comes out onto the stage, mostly in shadow, and is able to just capture them. I imagine those scenes so clearly I could see these, you know, the, the lead singer has this fascination with math and astronomy. And so those, if you look at old, like diagrams and illustrations from early stages of astronomy in the 16th and 17th centuries, they're really fascinating and beautiful. So I imagined those up on these screens sort of spinning. And I thought that would have a mesmerizing effect that would be much different from your typical like pyro, (laughs) you know, and big lighting. So I hoped that I was able to convey that. Oh, absolutely. And since we're talking about Carter, he tells a journalist at one point, early on actually, if music was the heart of me, part of my soul, then the study of the cosmos was my mind. So tell me a little bit more about his obsession with astronomy. I wanted to create an atypical rock star. I wanted Mm -hmm. this to be a very cerebral person, not to say that they aren't typically, but the way they're portrayed in media is stereotypically not that way. So I wanted him to be a very well-educated person who was studying philosophy at university before he became a successful musician. And he has this experience with the stars and the moon when he's a boy. And he goes on later to say that that was the same night that he had this experience with the moon and became fascinated with astronomy was also the night that he kind of got that first download that you hear artists talk about musicians when and songwriters when they, they get the, it's like a download where they, they just hear the music and they don't know where it comes from and a lot of people will say that i don't know where it comes from it just appears in my mind i hear it so the night that he has this experience with the moon is also the night that the first sort of song downloads into his mind. And that's when music and astronomy come together in his world and they stay equally his loves throughout his life. This thing that he experiences kind of echoes that strange astronomical event that happened in the late 1700s, which inspired the title of the novel. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about that. When I'm writing, I don't tend to um, do an outline. I have an idea of where the story is going and I can have the framework, but I don't actually outline the book because I give myself a lot of freedom for inspiration because when I'm researching, it will often inform new subplots. So I read a lot of nonfiction and I watch a lot of documentaries. It's just kind of my form of entertainment. And I happened to be watching a documentary at one point while I was writing May Luna. And I had seen this kind of strange story about the moon that happened in the 17th century, where it was reported that a group of people had seen what looked like a star in the dark part of the moon, like as if it were transparent. And at the time, you know, if it was now, we would say, oh, it's a satellite or a plane or something like that. But given the time period, that was impossible. So it was researched and it was officially reported at the Greenwich Observatory just outside London. So just being a research junkie, it was really fun for me to go in and find the scans of those documents and all of the diagrams that explain that. So that did happen, but I made it fiction that it happened again in the 80s for Carter and Evie, and they both see this phenomenon on two separate continents, and it kind of links them together and uh-huh. with the music. But that was a lot of fun for me. And it did inspire the, the word May Luna, which I came up with for the band's name because he saw the event in the month of May. and. And then his obsession with the moon, and it became a great band name. Yeah. Well, that was what I was going to ask you is, do we know if it ever happened again? But I I think you're saying no. Yeah. 
At least it hasn't been recorded. Recorded. I mean, yeah. All I know is that it was recorded uh, twice back in, at that time and then never again. So yeah, I made it up. That was the part I, you know, in my acknowledgments, I apologize for <laughs> the inaccuracy <laughs> and say, it's all my own. You know, I'm taking responsibility for this. It was that part of it was fiction. Well, we yeah. forgive you. Yeah. <laughs> We know astronomy is a big part of the book. Mm -hmm. Time traveling is part of the book. I was struck by something you said in an interview with Book Club Babel when you were promoting your first novel, A Day Like This, because it relates to May Luna. Okay. You were talking about how fast your daughters are growing up. Here's your comment. Quote, if I could have one superpower, it would be time travel so that I could go back to those two little babies and be the mom I was at the start of it all. End quote. I gather this concept has been percolating in your brain for a long time. Yes. So that's one of the things that I um, would say is a thread that is woven through both of my books. A Day Like This is my first book that you're referring to. And and it's very different from May Luna on the surface in terms of story. But there are themes in in it about second chances in terms of like, Mm -hmm. wow, if I could do life over again, if I could there's a wistfulness to both of them and imagining what life could have been like had I made different choices and being haunted by that. And then ultimately just trying to come to peace with your, with the life that you're living and then the trust that things happen for a reason. And that there is this grand orchestration happening and there are those metaphysical elements that are woven through both. So yes, I have, I, I will, everything I write will probably relate to those themes. I would imagine. You walked right into my next question, talking about the idea of everything happening for a reason. Yes. I stalk you on Instagram, by the way. Can't find you on Twitter, can't find you on Facebook, but you're on Instagram. So I was checking out some pictures and I saw this one of a beautiful staircase. And it's the Tulip Stairs at the Queen's House in Greenwich in London. And Mm -hmm. it's this ornate wrought iron spiral staircase with these Mm -hmm. what look like white steps. I think it was the first geometric self-supporting spiral stairway in Britain, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yes, okay. yes, that's correct. It looks like you shot the photo from the top looking down. So mm-hmm. there's a magical, mystical quality about that photo. And from this mm-hmm. angle, it looks like a nautilus shell. And you wrote in your Instagram post on that staircase, everything exists in one harmonious system. And the key to realizing and appreciating this unity lies in nature itself in the form of the golden spiral. And then right after that quote, you wrote, consider this a hint at what's to come in my next book. So tell me a little bit about the significance of the golden spiral to you and in May Luna. I love that you appreciated that photo, which by the way, was actually taken from the bottom of the staircase. It's an optical illusion. So it actually is, I was was laying on the floor on on this mark. Oh my gosh. Well, that (laughs) makes it even more impressive. Yeah. And I took it and then yes, it has this glass dome. And I have always been fascinated with that, with theories of the interconnectedness of life. 
And like I mentioned, I read a lot of uh, nonfiction. I read a lot about energy work. I came across a lot of the theories that of, of Pythagoras and Johann Kepler, and they really resonated with me to the point where I wanted to make them a subplot in May Luna and give Carter a lot of my own personal beliefs on those things. So when you hear him or read about, you know, read him saying you just have to trust that things happen for a reason and and that things are much more connected. He doesn't believe in coincidences. He believes in that there's a lot of synchronicity in this world. Those are all beliefs that I share. So the golden spiral, I think, is just so beautiful because you, you, when you look at it and you see how many places that it appears in the world and in nature, that's just it's just sort of impossible to imagine that that is an accident. It's just too perfect. It's mathematically perfect. It'd be very hard for me to believe that that's an accident. The uh, Pythagorean theorem is based on the golden spiral, or I guess you could say the golden spiral is based on the Pythagorean theorem. Mm -hmm. So we're coming back to math again. And let me just be clear, I am not a math person. (laughs) I don't (laughs) mean to say that I am, Um, which is funny because I have math in this book and I have quantum physics in the first book. So you would think that this is like my jam, but it is is not, but it does fascinate me. And so I like to read other people's study of it in digestible pieces. Yeah. It's really quite beautiful. And then the Musica Universalis, which is another theory that's somewhat related. It's all, well, it's an astronomical theory that talks about music having something to do with all of this. That's really beautiful too. And I thought, wow, what a great subplot for a, a book about a sort of mystical approach towards a rock band. Right. But don't you love that about writing? When you get an idea for a character and learn more about them and realize, oh, their inclinations are going in this direction. Oh, shit. I don't know anything about that. But then you get to do the research. So it kind of takes the maxim of write what you know and turns it on its head. Like, no, write what you want to know. Oh, I like that. Yes, that's so true. Absolutely. Then you get the chance to go down all of these rabbit holes and find out all of this stuff. And it just broadens what you're able to write about later, too. It's so true. I Yeah, I do love it. And because we are writers, we get to just write what we want to hang out with. You know, like, yes. well, I, I don't want to write about, about, I'm not going to dive into subjects that don't personally interest me. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, manifestation is a word that it's, it's very buzzy and has been for a couple of years. It's all over social media. Everybody talks about the word manifestation. But those theories, like the law of attraction, those have gone, I mean, those are going back decades and, well, probably centuries, actually, when you really get into it. But it's very like hip and of the moment right now. But when you um, apply those theories to, and you connect them to everything we're talking about, then it gets really mind blowing. There's a lot of that in the, in the book, too. Not a lot, because it really is mostly a story about music and this relationship between these people. But it sure was fun to do that, to, to weave those elements in. I think it brings a lot of peace to the characters. You know, I hoped that that's what I would achieve with the readers as well, because I won't give any spoilers, of course, but it is, this is not a happy story. Right. Um, And there's a lot of tragedy in it. The main character, Carter Wills, uses these theories to kind of process and, and be at peace with some very difficult things that have happened in his life. And then the other main character, Evie, does the same. And so I hoped that even though this is not a happy story, by the end of it, you're feeling hopeful. 
That was the exact word I was going to use. Yeah. Good. That was what I was hoping to achieve. It's so easy to get bogged down by the idea of things just being hard and being difficult and tragedy striking and then expecting that to continue happening. But I just really kind of wanted to give this idea of, well, if you can expect something like that, there's an equal chance that something better might happen. Offer a little bit of hope to to people who may have had their own version of heartbreak or tragedy like these characters have had. Where do you think that sense of optimism comes from with you? I was an only child. I spent a lot of time alone. So for me, my two activities were music and a pen in my hand. Those were like, all. I mean, it was, not, you know, we didn't have a lot of TV. We didn't have a lot of things to do. I, you know, a, a working mom. It was like, that's what I did. I don't know that I would call it optimism. I would call it belief that there is always the possibility that something could be going well. You just may not know it. On It may not look that way on the surface. Tell me your secrets and ask me your questions. Oh, let's go back to the start. You mentioned music and writing being important to you ever since you were a child. Well, mm-hmm. with Evie, she got music from her father, who was not the greatest father in the world, but he did give right. her that passion. Yeah. Where did the music come from for you? I actually, I don't know. My mom had a lot of, you know, the stand of like cassette tapes and eight tracks and albums and all of that. So I grew up with that. But I would say that I started playing the piano when I was really little and I developed an appreciation. It was a very healing process for me. It was like this really, it was like a salve. I loved it. And I would completely get lost in playing the piano. So I think that I began to see the power of it. And then I started going to live shows very young and I just loved it. I was instantly addicted to live music. And I just remember saying like, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be in some capacity. I want to be involved in this world. And then, and so that's what I, what I went on to do. I wish I would have had that parent who was, I mean, not that Evie's dad was great as mentioned, but like, at least he did give her all those really amazing music magazines and introduced her to the documentaries and and all that. But yes, yeah, I think I picked up a lot of that on my own. And that's so interesting because your life now is filled with music that you share with your two daughters. And there's always music going on in this household. We've got guitars and pianos and the younger one on the cello and somebody's like, it's just very cool. <laughs> well, speaking of home, since you mentioned that a minute ago, I love your essay, Finding Our Place. Oh, and that was published in Elephant Journal in 2021. And it emphasizes the connection to locations as a soul place. You wrote, quote, on some deeper level, we connect with certain spaces more than others. There are places where we feel as much a part of it as it does of us. It calls to us from somewhere beyond the daily fray, and we're drawn to it, sometimes without reason, end quote. How do you see that idea of a soul place manifesting in May Luna? 
That idea is very much, and I'll bring it back to May Luna in a moment, but that, that is the essence of, of the first, my first book, A Day Like This, because a care, a main character in that book is actually a house called the Yellow House. Right. And so, um, but I have had this relationship with place for my whole life. I really have. And so I loved the idea that Evie was in May Luna. She does not have that. She She's like lacking the roots because she has had a really just terrible childhood. She had a really difficult childhood in her hometown. She doesn't know where she belongs. And then for her, ultimately, she finds home. Her sense of belonging and home tends to be backstage with this band or on the road with this band. And she makes the music and her relationship with this found family her home. So I brought that into that. But then she also, her daughter eventually sort of goes to London. And there's this comment in there about how she comes alive, that her, you know, her daughter comes alive in a different city. And I think that that happens to people. I know that ha- that has happened with me. There will be places that I'll go to. And for some reason, it'll just rub the wrong way. I don't have any negative associations. It may be a beautiful town or whatever, but it just something about it doesn't feel like I belong. And then there are other places where I drop in and it's like, it feels like, oh, I've been here before, or this feels so familiar to me. And and it just calls to me. Is London your sole place? It's one of them. Yeah, it is. I have, I would say I have two. The first one, the first time that that happened to me was in the Catskill Mountains in New York. I had never been there before when I moved there. And it was like this rocky start at first because it's kind of, you know, it was a brand new type of style of living. But by the end of it, it just felt like this very nurturing place to me. And then the first time I went to London, I was going to see friends and I started walking around, walking the streets. And it was like, it was so comforting to me. It was like this warm blanket and I just absolutely came alive. And then I just started spending more and more time there to the point where I spend big portions of my year there now because it feels like coming home to myself, even though it's not coming home because I'm originally from Pittsburgh. It feels like home on a soul level. Hi, everyone. This is Neil Preston, and you are listening to Rock is Lit. I'm not, but Rock is. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. 
Okay, I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one from each category I'm going to throw out. You ready? I'm ready. All right, let's play the game. First category, rock photographers. The iconic photograph of Mae Luna in the studio with a mystery woman who turns out to be Evie was taken by Evie's friend, Derek Dorsey, mm-hmm. who became just as famous as that particular shot in the story. So let's talk real rock photographers. Some of the following were mentioned in the novel. Some I just tossed into the mix because I like them. Okay. Which is your favorite? Annie Leibovitz, Danny Clinch, Neil Preston, Bob Gruen, or Penny Smith, who shot the cover of The Clash's London Calling album? Oh, that is hard. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, Danny Clinch is iconic. I mean, you just that's just some incredible work there. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, but I will say Annie Leibovitz, because I love hearing about the stories of her out on the road, because she was like really in it. I mean, she was so in it, and she's part of those like the time period that you're talking about the Led Zeppelin days. I mean, that's like, she was in those rooms and I got, I drew a lot about Derek's, um, and not, well, I I leave Derek's antics off the page because it's a lot of what ended up having to be cut. Sadly, I loved Derek's character and I would have loved to have done more with him. He was one of my favorites, but I imagined him and Evie and I just allude to it very briefly Again, having to leave most of it off the page, but I talk about them being in the hotel rooms. And even though this is the late 90s, I kind of imagined them as being that 70s journalist, you know, combination of the journalist and the photographer on the road. Yes. So I'm going to say, yeah, I will say Annie Leibovitz, final answer. (laughs) Annie Leibovitz wins. Yeah. I love Neil Preston because he took this photograph of Jimmy Page at Keysar Stadium in 1973 that's such a big part of my novel. And he was Led Zeppelin's only tour photographer. He and Cameron Crowe were on the road together in the 70s. Cameron doing the interviewing, Neil doing the photography, and the two were best friends and then kind of acting as a a unit. So that's kind of what I was thinking about when you mentioned Mm. all the hotels. and Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really good. And I actually didn't, I actually, I didn't know that. And so that's, now I'm going to have to look that up because I'm fascinated. And, you know, it's funny. I actually have one of the original Rolling Stones, the cover that Cameron Crowe did of the Allman Brothers. Yes. I have that Rolling Stone. I got it on eBay and I it's like framed in our house. But I love that Derek was African-American. Yes. Yes. Because, I mean, how many African-American rock photographers were there on the scene? It, yeah, I, that was important to me. I wanted to, I, I liked that element about him. All right, here's another category. 90s British bands. Mayluna is a 1990s British alternative rock band. So I'm curious what bands from that era you like the most. What's your desert island band from the following? Radiohead, Blur, The Verve, Oasis, or Suede? Radiohead. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> okay. There's so much about Carter that. And the, and the band May Luna that reminds me of Radiohead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, there's a lot in there. I really like Radiohead, I will say that. Yeah. And I also would put, you know, and a lot of people wouldn't, but I put Coldplay and Snow Patrol 
and Travis in that category as well, because even though people tend to associate them with the early 2000s, they were coming up in like 98, 99. So I put them in that that category as well. Okay. But we're Mm -hmm. going with Radiohead. Yeah. All right. Next category, music magazines mentioned in the novel. Mm -hmm. So Evie is a music journalist, and I love the scene near the beginning where she offers Carter some advice on how to handle the media because he Mm, hates giving interviews. Right. Okay. Music magazines mentioned in the novel. Yes. Which is your favorite of these? Spin, Rolling Stone, Cream, or Melody Maker? Melody Maker. Really? Yeah. I read so many Melody Makers while I was researching this book that I became a fan. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If that's my desert island one, that would give me because I wasn't exposed to it as much when so I would have a lot of fresh reading. Okay. So you know, I was reading a lot of Rolling Stone and Spin back then. So Well that would make sense to take that on the desert island then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm I'm still mad at Rolling Stone for dissing Led Zeppelin all those years. Did they? That yes, oh my god, when they came out and those initial reviews for Led Zeppelin one, two, three, even four with Stairway to Heaven on it. And okay. so now the magazine reveres them. So it's of interesting what, what history will, will do. I think that makes artists everywhere come, you know, feel a little bit comforted. Like, ah, they don't always get right. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> New category, band documentaries. Mm. For Abby, words, music, and film pretty much define her. Mm-hmm. And she tells Carter when they first meet that she really wants to make band documentaries. And that would combine all of her passions for her. Which of the following band documentaries mentioned in the book resonate with you the most? Leonard Cohen, Bird on a Wire, Gimme Shelter, The Decline of Western Civilization, The Last Waltz, Ziggy Stardust, and The Spiders from Mars, or You Two Rattling Home? <laughs> what happened to meeting people is easy. That was my answer. That was the Radiohead one. <laughs> I was thinking of that because I remembered you you threw that out there earlier. I'm glad I didn't put it in here because now you have to choose something else. Um, okay, I'm going to say, and you're going to laugh when I say this, I am going to say Rattle and Hum. And the reason is I, well, I don't know. I can't really give the reason because now I'll get, I get myself in trouble a little bit, but I feel like there is a lack of emotional connection in that documentary is the way I will Ah, say it. So I feel that there are a lot of people who feel very passionately about you two. And I think the, the job of an effective music documentary is to just really make you feel the emotion of the band. And instead it felt like watching as an outsider. So it felt more egoic. Then it Uh did emotional. And so there was a lack of emotional resonance in it. And so when I watch it, I think, okay, this is what you want it to kind of look like, but this is not how you want it to feel like when you're capturing somebody else's story. And if I had the opportunity to tell somebody else's story, like May Luna, which is a fictional biography, essentially, if I had the opportunity to set to tell a non-fictional biography... I would want to to capture the emotion, not just the surface level. So that's my answer. I think that's a fantastic answer. And I actually don't feel like laughing. So um, Okay. Okay, good. But I, w- I would have chosen the decline of Western civilization. But there are two parts. There, I, there may be a third part. I'm not sure. But I know there are two. The first one is 
very early 80s punk in LA. Mm-hmm. And that I thought that was just really fascinating. And then the next one is hair metal in LA. That's not that fascinating to me. There are a couple, you know, a couple good documentaries about the punk movement. And so those are, yeah, those are very compelling to watch. We have one category left. Okay, I'm ready. All right. Drinks mentioned in the book. It's a rock novel. We have to talk booze. I'm legally required. Booze and drugs. There were a lot more drugs in the book. It got a lot of that got left off the page too. When I had John Ray, who wrote Gone to the Wolves on the podcast, Mm -hmm. I cataloged all of the mentions of alcohol in his novel, and it took up a whole page. (laughs) So he wins wins the the award so far for most alcohol mentioned in a rock novel. I'm not going to do that to you. I've only got two mentions of alcohol and hot tea thrown in there. So I happen to know that your signature drink is infused gin when you're feeling festive. You did do your research. I love it. <laughs> and that's so, it's, it's 100% true. All right. So let's see which of the others you'd pick to chug a lug or if you want to be more civilized about it, sip. Okay. Okay. So we've got hot tea. We've got scotch because apparently Carter spikes his tea with scotch in the afternoon. He does. Mm-hmm. We've got whiskey. And Evie says Carter smells of aged whiskey and powdery summer nights and earth. So... Which you gonna choose for whatever reason? I'm gonna choose scotch. Okay. Mm-hmm. I choose scotch because it tastes. Uh, it has a familiarity to me and evokes a lot of memories. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, if I'm going to choose of those three, it's definitely scotch. Scotch makes me barf, so I am not <laughs> picking scotch. <laughs> okay. Okay. I can do whiskey if it's mixed with something. Whiskey is a close second, but to, I, I can't really sip. I don't sip whiskey. I'll put a little in my tea, maybe rarely, but I'm not a whiskey drinker. But scotch, I just the, the smell of it is very evocative and the taste of it in, in small amounts. It's still not my drink of choice, as you mentioned. I'm a gin drinker, but of those three, that's what I pick. I could have given you more options like wine, beer, margaritas, vodka. Knob Creek bourbon. There's even some club soda thrown into the mix in the story. But I don't know. I, I guess I was in a scotch or whiskey mood when I came up with this category. Anyway, scotch for the win. Yeah. <laughs> scotch on the rocks. You at my side. Pour me a drink. Nowhere to hide. Love on the loose. Shit that I lied. Kelly, I saw on your website that your novel, A Day Like This, is currently being adapted for the screen. What's going on there? Yeah, oh, I wish I could say more. It's all very hush-hush at the moment, but it is exciting. And I have somebody that I'm working with who is just really doing a wonderful job of of capturing so much of the essence of that story. And we're working on it together. We're actually working on that sc- screenplay now. So wow. um, oh, it's just such a, I'm loving that. I'm loving that experience. But more importantly, I'm just so happy to know that it's in really good hands with this person. They just get it. So it's good. That book's going to get a whole new life. I mean, fingers crossed. 
you know, the way things like that are, it could happen like tomorrow or it could happen in 10 years. Film adaptations are that way. So it's at least moving in that direction, which is great. Mm -hmm. And we're celebrating right now because Mm -hmm. Meluna is in the world. It is out there. Everybody, you need to go get it. It's a fabulous book. Where can folks go to find out more about you and buy Mayluna? You can buy Mayluna wherever you like to buy your books. Right now, it's available in most countries in English. The, uh, there are other translations coming, but right now it's in English. And you can get it any, at your favorite bookstore. You can get it on Amazon, wherever you like to buy your books. You can also get it in audio. And there is a pretty great uh, audio ver- audiobook version of it uh, that I feel like the actors did a very nice job. Mm-hmm. And, and you can find me on Instagram at Kelly L. McNeil. And my name is spelled with an E, by the way. You can also find me at kellymcneil.com. And say, if you do, if you like the book, please you know, reach out. And particularly your audience, Christy, I think that it's a great audience. I could talk about this stuff forever. So yeah, reach out and say hello. If you forget how to get up with her on Instagram, shoot me a line because I stalk her. So I'll, I'll hit you <laughs> up. I'll get you going. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was so much fun. And again, everybody, I'll put links in the show notes to the Spotify May Luna playlist, which you definitely want to check out. Thank you so much, Kelly. This was such a pleasure. I loved this conversation. So thank you so much, Christy. Thanks for tuning in, Lit listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Links in the show notes. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I really appreciate your support. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.